It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world with its own needs. I mean, in your own head, beat it up and I've got no sleep. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down, I fire in a fire with the city of the gang. The government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, leave the jury down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of Doom. <laughs> And Bloom. That's right. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour on an interval of interest in an insidious world. That's what we are. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find a thousand post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. Nurse Amy? Yes. I am, Who are you? <laughs> I'm Amy Alton, and I am also known as Nurse Amy. I am a certified nurse midwife and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. And together we are the dynamic duo, the prodigious pair, the courageous couple, the spectacular spouses. <laughs> and we're here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? With a prurient possum, while our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care Whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but when someone gets hurt or injured, will you know what to do? Will you act or will you just be a bystander, a standing by bystander, just standing by? Well, (laughs) you probably should, if you have more sense than a barrel full of bananas, demonstrate that you know what's going on by learning what to do for injuries and illness in times of trouble. And while you're at it, get some supplies and maybe a medical kit to go along with all that knowledge. And what better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never-equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. I mean it. They'll help you handle medical issues you'll face in any disaster. And they're designed by, guess who? Nurse Amy and, indeed, this old guy right here you're listening to. (laughs) Compare our kits for contents, quality, cost with anybody else's stuff, please. Or you could just ask anyone who's ever bought one. I'll take that way, too. Or go through American Survival Guide's latest gear recommendations. Well, you know what? We got a lot of different people that say that our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. Hey, we learn as much from you as you do from us. 
And that's pretty obvious. So get in gear, dear, and reach out to the queen and the codger. It is so easy. <laughs> Here's the lovely nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. Contact us anytime by writing to us at drbones, that's B-O-N-E-S, podcast, what you're listening to, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at AOL.com. You can find us on Facebook at Doom and Bloom. You can also find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Uh, Look for us on Twitter, very simple, at Prepper Show. And let's see. Oh, we have a YouTube channel. That's right. At DR Bones Nurse Amy. <laughs> In survival, yes, the potential dear. for burn injuries is going to rise exponentially, especially if your group includes children. Kids are so naturally fascinated oh, yeah. by fire, they just can get too close. Ooh, I loved fire when I was a kid. Yeah, I'll bet you I'm did. I'm surprised I wasn't a fire starter. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, a fire bug. Pyromaniacs. Yeah. Pyromaniacs. I loved fire. Well, Fireworks, sparklers, lar- lighting stuff. fires whenever, we, whenever yeah. we went camping. I was the one who got to start the fire Is and do all the kindling and uh, make it real small. And well, how old were you when we were doing this? Oh, my gosh. Maybe... Seven. Oh boy. Eight. Well, you know nine. what? Nine. I learned early. Learned early. Okay. Well, that's good. Now I'm not sure that, that is an endorsement for having your seven-year-old children start all the fires. I did but... not start fires that were not in adult view. And never supervision. Never ever did I. And we had some property. I could have never. I just knew safety, and also I was scared to death. I would get the belt. So, <laughs> so my dad had the the little guilt power over us. So we got in trouble. We knew what was coming. So better not do anything bad, or Mama was going to tell on you. You didn't want to run afoul of the corporal. Mm-mm. Nope, nope, the nope. corporal punishment. Nope, <laughs> nope, not the Air Force dude. Toe the go. line, and everything will be fine. <laughs> there you go. Well, anyhow, having materials and knowledge to treat burns is going to be pretty important for any group's medical provider. So let's talk a little bit about burns. The severity of a burn injury depends in part on the percentage of the total body surface that's involved, as well as the degree of penetration into the body, into through the skin, right? There's a whole map of the body with percentages of surface areas, and in that, in, in that map, an arm counts for 9%, a leg counts for 18%, the front of your torso, 18%, the back of your torso, another 18 and so on and so on. And that's great. For normal times, assessing the surface percentage that's burned is pretty standard practice, very helpful in modern medicine, but might be have less practical <clears throat> benefit in austere settings where transport just isn't an option. Right. This, can... this is really used for assessing the initial contact of a burn victim, of, of charting what you're seeing as burned, uh, getting it into medical records, following the percentage of healing that's going on. Uh, they're really... Sticklers for percentage of body surface burned, right? And so, and and that's great because that gives you something to measure from. This is what started. This is what's healed. This is what you know still is left to be done. And so, it's the way to chart progress. But what you're saying, I completely agree, is in survival. Eh, is it twenty, thirty? You can probably eighteen percent. You can probably estimate it. You know, the estimate the yeah, sever- severity of a burn by the know, percentages. Even I, in the wild? I think the fact that you just say this is really bad is, you know, probably good enough to right. 
be super careful with these patients. To me, more important <clears throat> is the depth of the burn. Yes, and exactly. let's talk a little bit about that. Their first degree burns, and most burns you'll see, will be due to excessive exposure to the sun or by falling asleep in the tanning booth. Maybe not in survival. <laughs> I will never scenarios, be. I will but... <laughs> never be accused of that. And I know. And, nope. I'm, and I'm glad that you're um, not. I don't want skin cancer. You definitely don't want to do that. No, no. Do that. So in other words, sunburn, and in most cases, these are going to be first degree burns, and in first degree burns, only the superficial part of the skin that called the epidermis is actually injured. Now to avoid these kinds of burns, you don't want to sunbathe. A tan is not a sign of good health. It is more of a sign of carelessness. Uh, avoid being out during peak sun hours. That would be maybe 11 to 4 p.m. 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. and unless you have to be outside. Spend time in the shade whenever it's possible. Or at least Wear long pants and sleeves, hats, sunglasses, things like that. Why sunglasses now, you might wonder. Your eyes can be damaged over time with excessive exposure, which can lead to damage like cataracts. And cataracts are a clouding of the lens of the eyes that happens over the years. In the old days, it left you mostly useless with a very, very cloudy vision. And then surgery finally came around to remove the lens and saddled you with very thick glasses. And now they can implant a new lens of medical miracle. But imagine having this condition if you know what hit the fan. If you can't avoid extended exposure to sunlight, be certain to apply a sunblock. They should be applied prior to going outside and frequently throughout the day. Even water-resistant sunscreens need to be reapplied from time to time throughout the day, every one to two hours. Most oh, people, especially if you get in the water. That's right. That's a big thing because those will wash off. Despite saying they are waterproof, there you they'll go. slide off. That's right. Now, especially with the activity. And most people fail to put enough on their skin. So be generous in your application of sunblock and do it at least 15 minutes before going out in the sun. By the way, a sunblock and a sunscreen are not the same thing. Sunblocks contain tiny particles that block and reflect UV light, ultraviolet light. A sunscreen contains substances that absorb UV light as opposed to blocking it, a different animal altogether. Now, many commercial products contain both sunblocks and sunscreens. Believe it or not, these are important medical supplies. They should be part of your medical storage if you are preparing for disaster settings. Now you may have heard of the term SPF 30 or SPF 50 or some other number. The SPF is the sun protection factor, SPF. That rating system was developed in 1962 to measure the capacity of a product to protect against ultraviolet radiation. And it measures the length of exposure to the sun before you burn. A SPF of at least 15 is recommended. What happens is, is that SPF 15 actually tells you when you should start burning. It takes about 20 minutes without sunscreen for your skin to start turning red. A product that is an SPF 15 should delay burning by a factor of 15. That would be about five hours compared to 20 minutes. Even higher SPF ratings would give more protection and are especially beneficial to people that have fair skin, like the goddess sitting next to me. <laughs> That's you, right? Just call me pale face. <laughs> <laughs> well, besides the sun, first degree injuries will most likely be related to cooking or campfires, as I mentioned before. And using hand protection is going to prevent many of these types of burns, as, of course, would 
careful supervision of children, right? And especially near campfires and food preparation areas. First degree burn, that's going to appear red, warm, and dry. It's going to be painful to the touch. I'll bet that sometime in your life you've had a sunburn. The younger you are, however, probably the less likely that you've actually had a major sunburn because that's just no longer just a, in style. Even just a quick touch yeah. of something that's super hot. Yeah, that would do it, it too. Exactly right. The edge of an oven. Mm-hmm. I think I have several of those on my yep. forearms. Now, most people do tolerate <laughs> these, and most people heal very well from these. Now, if you do have a, a, a pretty significant burn over your chest or you know major part of your body, that is a first-degree burn. Well, basically what you're going to have to do is to immerse it in a cool shower or a cool bath cool if you want to make off. you feel better. Yes. Uh, yeah, at the very least, run cool over over the area of the injury. A moist cloth maybe on the burn that might give some relief. Anti-inflammatory medicines like ibuprofen might help. Aloe vera, zinc oxide, effective alternatives as well. And usually over the course of 24 to 48 hours, that discomfort goes away. Don't pat them on the back or slap them on the back. <laughs> Please don't. You know, while that happens. But that, I think, if, if you just leave people alone, they will be better. If you we'll make sure heal. they don't wear tight clothing or they should be okay. And wear light fabrics if you can, such as cotton. Cotton, That yes. does not absorb a lot of heat. Then you've got second-degree burns. Of course, second-degree burns are much deeper injuries. Uh, they penetrate through the superficial epidermis and partially through the deeper layer of the dermis. And we call those either second-degree or partial thickness burns. Those really, really hurt. Oh, yeah. Second-degree burns. I actually had a pretty significant one that started off as a, a sunburn in my family kept putting this stuff on to make me tan more, thinking that it was a stylish thing to do. Of course, this was many, many, many years ago. What was that, the iodine? Copper tone. Copper tone. Oh, okay. No, they didn't use iodine It was also the the baby oil. Yeah, the baby oil, copper tone, all these things you saw maybe... Basically greasing your body and sticking yourself in a frying pan is what it was. Essentially what that was. (laughs) Or falling asleep in the tanning booth. That's basically what that was. Well, I got it so bad that I actually, my skin started to blister from the burn. And... Poor thing. So I wound up laid up in bed, hot as an oven. Oh, yeah. And with probably a 100 blisters on my back. <sighs> oh, honey. And skin that was not quite like a sunburn. When a second-degree burn occurs, it's going deeper, going into the deeper layer of the skin called the dermis. And when it does that, it changes the appearance. That area will tend to weep somewhat, so it'll be a moist-looking burn. Instead of a red, hot, and dry burn, it'll be red and moist. may weep some clear liquid, some yellowish liquid, or or even some vague whitish material called exudate. This is something that causes a lot of swelling. The skin will swell much more than with a first-degree burn, if you have somebody that has that, make sure you remove rings and bracelets or necklaces, things like that, because it can be very difficult to get it off once the swelling has occurred. Well, my family thought the right treatment was to peel off the abnormal skin, and 
that was the bad thing to do because they wound up peeling off. They tried to peel off like a, what they thought was a little bit, and they peeled off about 12 inches of my skin, mm. uh, a strip about two inches wide. You know what? I'm surprised you don't have a scar. Old, I know. Do I have a scar? I don't even know. How, how do, do I know if I have a scar? Do you remember which side it was on? It was right in the middle. In the middle. So here we go. This is... You know, this does look a little lighter right oh, here. Well, there you go. Oh. So that maybe that's why they refused me. Maybe that's why they rejected me for naked and afraid. <laughs> <I didn't. laughs> could be, could be. Well, I'll have to live with that. But that's okay. To treat second degree, nobody burns. needs to see that. <laughs> well, thank you, gotcha. and thank you so much. That is so nice of you. Well, yeah. Now, listen, you know, I don't mean it. <laughs> <laughs> to treat second-degree burns, what you need to do is you need to run cold water or cool water at least over the injury for about 10 to 15 minutes, but avoid ice. Remember that skin is traumatized already, and applying ice to it is just going to damage it more. You want to apply moist skin dressings such as uh, Spenco Second Skin or maybe some non-stick dressings like Telfa. Telfa pads, mm -hmm. that would be useful. Well, uh, I just want to mention something about Telfa pads. They actually have a, a little bit of a shine. So they won't adhere to the healing skin, especially when you have that second degree, because your skin is going to start healing. And if you've got the gauze, if you guys know the woven look of just regular gauze, you know, overnight, some of those little cells can attach themselves. And then the next day you go to pull off the dressing and yowza, yeah, and skin goes with it. Just like what happened so to me. So there's generic non-stick, mm. non-adherent, any words like that, a brand name is actually Telfa. Right. Now, I think that it's probably best to always have a little bit of uh, drainage available that since that area is leaking some fluid usually. Then maybe if you have three sides of that dressing taped down on one side not, that might not be a bad idea. Of course, you're going to need pain relief, so get some, get, get some ibuprofen. Uh, anesthetic ointment like benzocaine might be good. They use something called silvadine, which is a silver and uh, sulfadiazine antibiotic combination that's very commonly used to treat burns, also used to treat bed sores, by the way. Uh, if you can find that, that'd be great, although I think it's by prescription. Antibiotic ointment if the area is slow to heal. If <clears throat> the blisters happen to be in areas where they're in the way, you might as well pop them if they're large. And I, when you pop a blister, pop it not on the top, but pop it towards the edge of it so that the skin remains on top. It will be sort of like a another dressing. A, a deflated tent. Right, You've exactly. allowed the fluid to come out, and the top of the tent just sort of comes down easily and provides another layer of protection because that skin underneath is so new and so healing, it's really, really tender. Absolutely right. I also have to say that if the blisters are not particularly large or if they're not going to be in the way when you're trying to lay down to go to sleep, for sure. example, and not going to pop on you when, when you lay down, then it may not be necessary at all to pop the blisters. Say, you know what? A, a good spot for that would be the top of your foot, unless you're going to be putting your foot in a shoe. I recommend flip-flops if you have a blister on top of your foot. Do right. not put your foot in a shoe if you can prevent it. Let it heal. I think that makes a lot That's of sense. That's a recipe for a way worse wound. You start putting a sock over like yeah. a bad burn and, and in a sweaty boot. And also... Not going to heal very easily. And 
potential to prevent infection, your your tendency to prevent infection is compromised because you've lost part of your armor, right? Yep. Part of your skin. Yep. And so as a result, you may have a higher chance for infection if you do and something keep, like that. you'll keep putting friction on it. There's no way you can keep your foot from moving inside of a boot. So it, it's just a whole mess of worms. Try to wear flip-flops if you have a blister on your foot. <clears throat> and you don't have to pop that is what we're saying. Well said. Well said. Uh, and let's talk a little bit about third-degree burns. Uh, these are going to be so problematic in survival settings. Yeah, they penetrate the full thickness of the skin. They go right through. You burn right through the skin. Now they're in deeper structures like fat, muscle, and bone. And burns like this can appear differently. They can appear charred. They can appear white in color. It just depends so on gray, the source of the heat. So our, our different colors would be white, gray, black. Um, they, it might even look bloody. Yep, reddish, you know, if, it, red. if it's if right. blood came out, but the the blood was also charred. Right, it's true. You know, a, it can a, look crusty. A major scald will look different than an electrical burn. Exactly. So they do have different looks. These burns sometimes look indented if you've lost significant tissue, and these people are so at risk for infection because they have no skin yes. anymore, and and so even the air itself, which is colonized by bacteria can cause a life-threatening infection. Oh, These people also lose fluids a lot. Sure, so. but I just want to mention one more thing about size. It, it, a third degree is a third degree, whether it's the width of your pinky, and I mean the end of your pinky, so a half of an inch, or it's you know half of a leg. It's still a third degree. It's not the amount of, of burned skin. It's the depth. That gives you the definition of third degree. That's I just want correct. to be clear about that. Yes, that's correct. <clears throat> now, these people also lose fluids very rapidly, so you got to give fluids. If you have IV fluids, that may be something you may need to do is replace it with some normal saline, other kinds of other kinds of IV fluids. There's a whole formula for that. And the loss of fluids can be really rapid, too, so it's very, very scary. Now, when a person gets burned, you have to remove the heat source immediately uh, and run cool water over any degree of burn for at least 10 to 15 minutes as soon as possible after the injury. Cool water is better than ice. It's less traumatic to already injured tissue. You have to remember also in these cases, you also still want to remove rings and jewelry. Swelling is very common in these kinds of injuries. Uh, the skin, you don't have any skin anymore, so you have to remember that infection is very likely. You're going to have to give antibiotics to these people and you have to have something to cover the burn area. Now, interestingly enough, combat gauze, not made by Quicklop, but made by Sealox, a Sealox Z-fold gauze, is something that if you wet it, it becomes this slimy dressing that is very good to cover a third-degree burn. And when you cover a burn that's a third-degree burn with, let's say, put honey on or and cover with plastic or put this on, this, this Sealox and cover with plastic, Make sure you don't cover with the plastic all the way around. Give it a little bit of opening so that it can expand because there may be more swelling that occurs. Right. Interestingly, there are indeed yes. other classifications <laughs> that call them fourth and fifth and sixth degree burns. But this, from my standpoint, Again, is all you need to know. Exactly. In order That's to get That's more of a finesse in hospitals. Exactly. And I, I agree that in hospitals you have to be, you know, right on spot with what diagnosis you give, where you're starting from, and so you know how the healing process is going. So it's much more detailed in a hospital. So, so what happens is 
you know, the body tries to heal itself, so it's just going to form a lot of scar tissue. And if you need mobility in that area, you know, scar tissue is okay if it's, say, on your forearm. Right. You know, a, a small amount. But if you're talking about an elbow or a knee or your hands, I mean, there are just certain areas where that skin needs to be stretchy. Yeah. And scar tissue doesn't give you that mobility. It reminds me of a friend of mine who was a resident at Jackson Memorial Hospital with me, and he had terrible third-degree burns, spent months in the hospital when he was a teenager because he was he was a surfer, and yes. he was cleaning his board with kerosene, which apparently was a thing back then, and somehow somebody was smoking nearby or something like that, and indeed ignited his entire garage and with him in it that his I remember his right arm he could not fully extend it and that was because of scar tissue at the elbow so this is pretty serious stuff it is really serious and he's lucky he survived he showed me his burn he's uh, he was also um, a doctor here in South Florida remember I went to see him once and he showed it to me it was it was really crazy yeah but you know what he did he just moved on. Right. And he went, had a great went attitude. To school. Yep. He he went to medical school. He became a doctor. And he continued to surf. Right. He and was... you know what? A body is just a, a shell for us. You know, we're really the people that are on the inside. That's right. He not had the a, outside. Well, he had a lot of intestinal fortitude, and I certainly good admire for, I him. I know. He was, he was a good guy. <laughs> All right. So let's talk a little bit about alternative burn treatments. You are the medic. It's a survival scenario, you're off the grid, so what do you do? Now, well, there are indeed various plants and other substances that may have properties that could help you help a burn to heal, even if no modern supplies are necessary. So let's talk a little bit about those. Now, of course, they work better for first and second degree burns rather than third, but worth a shot, right? Well, uh, one of the most popular of these is aloe vera, and studies have shown that aloe vera helps new skin cells form and speeds healing, And it's an excellent option for especially first and secondary burns. So what you do is you take an aloe leaf, you cut it open, either scoop out the gel or rub the open leaf directly on the burned area. It's pretty simple. And you reapply that on a regular basis several times a day, four to six times a day maybe. The simplicity of this and the the fact that aloe vera grows in a bunch of different climates. We have it down here in South Florida where it's very humid. You would think it's like a desert kind of plant. But we've had people we have tell lots us, of rain here. Well, and we've had lots of people tell us that they have aloe plants in strange, crazy places, strange locations that I never thought that an aloe would survive. So it's a hardier plant than you think. And when we have been planting medicinal plants <laughs> in our garden and around our house, uh, basically, it's if it survives, great. If it doesn't. Sorry, it's just not something that's going to grow around. But we have things that do grow that I'm kind of surprised about. So you can try it. You right. never know. Well, you would, like I said, you would think aloe vera needs a dry climate. We're not dry here, certainly. Not in the and least. And our aloe vera grows just, just fine. Just fine, right. Absolutely. Now, there are many articles on burn remedies that include things like vinegar. Vinegar, just about any type seems to work as an astringent. It's an antiseptic. It helps to prevent infections. It is very cooling, and it does. It sounds like the opposite thing of what you would want to put on a burn, but it is really soothing. You make a compress. If you take, uh, you could do a 50-50 or you could do 25% vinegar. It doesn't have to be terribly strong, but just in a bowl of water, and then 
you know, put a washcloth in there or some cold cotton or some 4 by 4 gauzes and apply compresses. Just very soothing. If you have the ability to have a bath, you could put a goodly amount of vinegar in. I'm not going to tell you exactly how much because I don't know how big your bathtub is. Um, don't make the water too hot. Make it warm and put the vinegar in and get in there and soak and stay in there as the water cools off. You will feel so much better if you have, say, you know, your legs got burned or your back got burned. Uh, it is just really, really soothing. Right. If you only have the ability to have compresses, don't have a bath, make the vinegar a 50-50 solution with water. Right. And cover the burn completely and re-soak the compresses when they start to feel warm. It's incredible how and, it cools it right. off. And there's no limit Seriously. to how often you can apply vinegar soak, so that's that's fine. Uh, with the vinegar, I just want to, a vinegar bath that you're talking about, I want to make sure that people say start with tepid water. Exactly. That's and, what I'm saying. Not right. too hot. Exactly. That's important. Exactly. If the, the burn is on the torso, you just have a little bit of water, you could take a cotton t-shirt and soak it in vinegar, and that may give you some relief as well. That's, I've <laughs> gone to sleep many times with that when I lived, well, I've been down here in South Florida, but when we went out boating or skiing, or yep. hiking, or camping, yeah, <laughs> all the outdoor things that we did for uh, fun. <laughs> well, there you go. And, and In so, the hot summer sun. <laughs> and something similar is uh, that's good for cooling off is a witch hazel compress. I mean, you use the uh, extract of the bark, which it decreases inflammation. It certainly soothes a first-degree burn really well. You would soak a cloth in full-strength witch hazel, apply it right to the burned area, and reapply as frequently as you need to. That's uh, the next tree I want to buy, by the way. Okay. Hey, oh, yeah. Hey, witch hazel. That would be yeah. awesome. I love that. Elderflower, comfrey leaf, decoctions, as they say, are an excellent remedy for burns as well. If you have never heard of the word decoction, it's an extraction of the crushed herbs produced by boiling. And so using uh, lower water temperatures, that makes a tea. If you use boiling water then and extract the crushed herbs, uh, that extract is called decoction. The decoctions of these plants can be used for compresses. It can be uh, applied directly to the burned area with a, a gauze cover. That's called a poultice. That's, so here are some of these old-timey terms that you probably haven't heard for a long time, and these are crushed up ways that you herb. can de actually yep. put together herbs so that they can actually give you some healing effect. Uh, black tea leaves, they have tannic acid that helps draw heat from a burn. You put two or three tea bags in cold water, cool water rather, for a few minutes. Use the water with compresses or just apply that to the burned area. If your patient has to be mobile, well, you make a stay-in-place poultice out of two or three wet tea bags and simply place the cool wet tea bags right on the burn and wrap them with a piece of gauze or some tape to hold them in place. Uh, people have also used milk or, and yogurt. They help cool and hydrate the skin after a burn. You wrap some whole milk or full-fat yogurt uh, in gauze or cheesecloth cloth, and you know soak it up real good. Use that as a compress. That would be uh, worthwhile. These compresses usually remove as they become warm themselves. And then, of course, there's the baking soda bath. Take a quarter of a cup of baking soda, add that to a, a warm bath, and soak for at least... 15 minutes or at least until the water cools off. 
Right. So there are some that are very useful. Now, there are some essential oils that can be used on first or second degree burns. Not all of them can, but uh, lavender oil is one of them. And uh, it, what you do is you mix lavender or tea tree oil, that's another one, that will help with pain due to stinging from the burn and maybe promote tissue healing. This is something you would apply over the burned area in a dilute form and very thinly. Uh, loose covering of gauze maybe over that may be helpful for second degree burns. Absolutely. Other f- real fats like butter or lard, which is commonly uh, in the past used for, was commonly used for burns in the past, they actually hold in the heat and so they are not to be used in the treatment of burns. So it's something that's important for you to realize. You can also make a poultice of calendula, calendula, is that, I had never pronounced that right. I know, calendula. Calendula. And that's, I might as well just say marigold. (laughs) And pound them with uh, some wheat germ oil or olive oil and then spread that lightly over the burned area. That's also helpful. There are so many different, wow, so many different. There really are. Natural burn remedies, but one of the best ones, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I found something very interesting in uh, one of these thousand gift catalogs that uh-huh. came to the house. What's that company? Hammer? Hammer Schlemmer? Schlemmer. Hammer Schlemmer. I call it Hammer Schlemmer. So what is Hammer Schlemmer? What is Hammer Schlemmer? They have a little miniature copper distiller. Oh. Did you see it? Yeah, it's very cool. We have one of those, but I don't I don't think we got it from this place. Now, I got to tell you, though, distilling your own essential oil is a heck of a job. You know, you got a, you got an acre of lavender. You get about, I don't know, 12 gallons or something like that of oil in total. Of course, that is a lot of oil if you realize how much you use. But, I, I mean, it takes a lot of that stuff to make anything. So I just don't know if these little distilleries are of much use. I was not mentioning it as a prepper. <laughs> oh, just as a thing. Cute, cute thing? I was mentioning as something very cute that if oh. you wanted to, you know, do tiny little experiments uh, well, with certain herbal leaves. I mean, it's it's small. I, you weren't going to get more than a drop of anything. So that's it, ladies just and gentlemen. You want to listen to the cutest podcast in town? Just listen it's to the miniature, Doom and Bloom Survival Miniature Copper Distiller. Hour. It's is very cute. So cute. Oh. I remember using mine. Yes. I'm... We got Malaluca leaves, which is tea tree. Yes, I remember. Because we have Malalucas everywhere. Everywhere around here. Everywhere. Invasive species. Everywhere, everywhere. Around here. But they do have tea tree oil that you can get out of them. So that's something. We ended up with a couple drops of tea tree oil. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not easy. It wasn't folks. easy. Wasn't Buy easy. your oils now. Right. <laughs> Before. Believe me. Yes. When I tell you. <laughs> yeah, I think people really will probably be most, will be using teas more than anything else because they're simpler to make. Like a lot of time you can just take the leaves off the plants or you, maybe you have to dry them for a while, things like that. But teas are probably a lot easier. That's why we included a chapter on teas in our um, third edition so much of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The well, Essential Guide. Well, after we God. used that little distiller, I thought, oh my gosh. Well, I wasn't going to invest in a big giant one. No. Nope. They are very expensive. No. Nope. You're talking about a lot of copper there. But it was it was fun to to realize how much work that these 
manufacturers of these oils. Um, small batch. I like Mountain Rose herbs, folks, by the way. If you're thinking about getting some oils, they do make them small batch. It's family owned. Mm -hmm. um, it's a group of really nice hippie herbalists, Birkenstock wearing. They are totally into their herbal medicine and they want organic. So they're real careful about what they choose and how they process it. So you know you're getting high quality and I don't work for them. I just have met them when we've gone to some other earth shows. And right. they're amazing people. Well, small I business. have some. Well, speaking of small business, uh, most of the small businesses. We're a small business. <laughs> I, uh, there is a type of small business that makes another useful burn remedy, and that is honey. Uh, one of the best yes. remedies for treating the natural remedies or treating the burn patient is raw, unprocessed honey. You should always use it in its raw, unprocessed state because of it, it has more antibacterial activity and it also has hydrating properties. And so this is a pretty important impressive germ-killing effect, and it's thought to be due to a type of pH, an acidic pH that's just not happy, bacteria are just not happy with. Raw honey pre helps prevent, even treat infections in a lot of wounds. It can be used in first, second, and if no other medical option is available, well, you know, a, a third-degree burns. This is how to use honey. In the first 15 minutes, you know, the cooling down that you're doing by adding water, running cool cool water on that. Once you do that, apply a generous amount of honey in a thick layer all over the burned area. Cover the honey with plastic wrap or waterproof dressings. And you can use tape to hold the dressing in place, but do not wrap it all the way around. Don't use cling wrap, or at least don't wrap in a tight way because swelling that's right. going to occur from the burn can cause Loose. undue pressure. Sure. And so especially if you use that saran wrap, or, and if you wrapped it all the way around tightly around the arm, it could cause a great deal of discomfort or even affect whatever circulation happens to be left uh, in the area of the wound. Now, if the dressing begins to fill up with fluid oozing out of the wound, then change the dressing. So you may have to change that pretty often. The, actually, truthfully, the worse the burn, the more frequently dressings are going to have to be changed. Don't remove or wash off the honey for the first two or three weeks. Add more honey often. Fill up the deeper layers as you need to. And always have a thick layer of honey just over the edges of the wound to avoid any air getting to the burned skin. So you're, you're causing... Remember, air has bacteria, and so you're trying to prevent as much as possible there being contamination of the burn wound. If you have complete coverage of the area, that's going to help decrease the infection rate. At least you need to change the dressing about three times a day. Dealing with burns, I'll tell you, are it's really challenging for not only you, the caregiver, but it's challenging for the patient as well. It's very painful to deal with a lot of these burn issues. And if you can, if at all possible, make sure you keep people away from situations where they might be burned. So let's see. Yes. How are you doing there? I'm doing great. I'm actually doing CEUs. CEUs are Herbal continuing educational units, right? Or Herbal like medicines, an evidence-based review. <laughs> oh, perfect. All right, well, we'll find out what they have to say. Probably they're not so not so into it, but it is uh Actually, it's, it's They're okay with it? Good. I'm yeah, so glad they're not. getting their act together with regards to yeah, that. Yeah, and they acknowledge that a lot of drugs have come from Natural products. Well, of course, they, they have to. They mentioned aspirin, digitalis, uh -huh. morphine, most antibiotics, and anti-cancer drugs. Sure. Um, 
So, yeah, it's actually pretty positive. But what it really talks about, which makes sense to me, is that there's a fear from the public to disclose that they right herbal supplements remedies they're using right to their doctor because they automatically assume that the doctor's going to think they're nuts right and ridicule them yeah and tell them oh why are you doing that there's no scientific proof well i'll say that in some cases it's actually true i don't know about oh yeah doctors that are just (laughs) coming out of medical school situations well it depends on what you've been doing you know Right. I mean, you've been chanting and and running around a totem pole, thinking it's going to heal your broken foot. He he may say there's a problem right. there. Of conventionally trained medical professionals like you and I, I mean, it's sort of rare to have a couple that are integrated in their philosophy with regards to both natural and conventional medicine. So it is... But there's a significant portion of people who are using it. Of course. one thing... A lot of our audience and and us. I know, but this goes back to 2012. And also, this is also something that people had to admit. Not everyone admits to the truth. You know, think about these... Political polls. Oh, boy. Nobody thought Trump was going to win because every time they did the polls, everyone said, oh, yeah, I'm voting for Hillary. And then, surprise. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, in 2012, more than three out of ten adults, which is 33.2, in the United States used, they call it complementary medicine. Ah. Is what they're calling it here. Um Complementary so, medicine approaches, so CMAs. I used to use complementary medicine all the time. Every time I saw a patient, I said, hey, you look great. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's complementary medicine. It's true. It's true. And 17.7% use natural products other than vitamin and mineral supplements. In Canada, an estimated 18% of the population takes natural products other than vitamin and mineral supplements. In other words, they're not... Counting taking a vitamin C as you know taking as a natural right, thing, yeah. right? That they so they said anything other than that. So that's very interesting. Well, good, good portion of the country. I think it's growing. I really do. Right, and it, I don't know why they wouldn't consider taking vitamin C as a complementary medicine because. Well, I guess. I mean, I it's an know. antioxidant. It's What's the true. difference between ta- between taking that and taking glutamine or I guess other kinds of things. You know what? Because so many people Coke do, do take vitamins and, and those kind of supplements that they would end up with 100%. So they wanted to remove something that's been taken for years and is just really commonly accepted. So they're looking at the trend, you're saying. They wanted to look for everything other than that. Right. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk so a little... So reading some interesting things. I, I'm so glad. <laughs> I hope you... We'll chime in here. I will share. All right. Share, yeah, because yes. I'm sure there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Wait, I have to say one thing. Okay. The CAM the... includes a wide, right, we're just talking about complementary. Yeah. I guess they've moved the A around. CAM includes a wide range of products, including natural health products and practices such as prayer. Oh, wow. Chiropractic. Homeopathy and massage therapy. Wow, and this is they're including in, prayer. And this in is this. in a conventional medicine continuing education unit. Yep. Wow, very cool. It is. All right. Well, that's that's really interesting. You know what? 
Well, let's talk about something else now. In the typical zombie apocalypse movie or TV show, that if you've been watching The Walking Dead or something like that, you probably see a lot of gunshot wounds, broken bones, all sorts of terrible things, uh, knife wounds and stuff like that. But off the grid, you know, minor conditions are probably going to be the major detriment to the performance of a lot of activities of daily survival. And one of these is the ingrown toenail, and that's also known as Onychocryptosis. Wow. Well, you probably have never heard of that before. You probably heard of ingrown toenails, but not onychocryptosis. Well, I have a cure. You have a cure what? Cut it off. Cut your toe off. All right. Okay. No, cut the nail. Oh, cut the nail off. Oh, okay. <laughs> cut your foot off. Cut your leg off. No, there are some people that just, like people I know, that just have a nail that grows in the wrong direction as it's growing up. It grows sideways, too. My dad has this problem. All right. Well, you just yes. went to the very end of my article. I'm just of my, saying. Of my talk here. I'm just saying. But yes, you're right. <laughs> that is something that is what you would do if you have no other choice. But I'm. <laughs> but before we go to the very end of this talk, <laughs> let's go ahead and talk a little bit about <laughs> generally about this kind of situation. So. Uh, you guys out there, you're a bunch of rugged individualists, I'm sure, probably think the toenail problems are no big deal. And, of course, that's until you have one. And if you have a major ingrown toenail... You just say ouch. Ouch is right. You know, when you have to be at 110% efficiency just to survive, you don't want to have to be in pain every time you take a step, right? So in the worst scenarios, you got to realize that ingrown toenails are just the beginning. You can start having... Skin ulcers, you can have blood infections, also known as septicemia. You could lose circulation to an area that's known as gangrene. And that, of course, you know, happens more often on the very tips of your extremities, fingers and toes. So this is something that's an issue. Now, you may not know what toenails are made of. They are made of a protein called keratin or alpha keratin. And it's a substance that forms claws in animals and also the covering of hooves and horns. And when we refer to issues that involve nails, it is called ungual. That's medical speak. If you ever hear somebody say, I got an ungual infection, that means I got an infected toe. And it comes from the Latin word for claw, which is unguis. The nail consists of a, d a number of different parts, and they inc that includes the nail plate, which is a hard covering of the end of your finger and toe, what you consider to be the nail. Uh, the nail bed, though, is the skin directly underneath the nail plate, and it's made up of skin, dermis, and epidermis, just like the rest of your skin. And the superficial epidermis actually moves along with the nail plate as it grows. And you may actually notice, if, if you're an older person, you may notice that there's some vertical grooves on your nails. And what these do is they attach your skin, the superficial layer of the skin, the epidermis, to the deep dermis as the nail grows. And in older people, you can actually see these grooves pretty easily or, in, or maybe in young people if you look closely enough. And in this nail bed, you have all sorts of blood vessels and nerves, you know, just like you have in your skin. You have uh, all, all the things other than hair, I guess, that run through the nail bed. Now, then you have the matrix. The nail matrix, sometimes called the germinal matrix, is the root at the base of the nail, the portion of, that's under the under the cuticle, the skin that surrounds the uh, base of the nail and, and the sides. And, and that produces, the matrix produces the new cells 
for the nail plate, for what actually looks like the nail. You can see a portion of the matrix if you look at your, uh, at your nails in the half moon looking thing that is right at the very base of it. And that's it's lighter than the rest of your nail and it's called the lunula. So you'll see that right at the base of the nail plate. And it's the lunula that actually determines the shape and the thickness of the nail. If you have a curved matrix, it produces a curved nail. If you had a flat matrix, it produces a flat nail. So my matrix I'm looking here is sort of curved. So I have a, uh, a, a curve to my nail. Now, an ingrown toenail occurs when the edge of the nail grows downward and into the skin of the toe. And that occurs for a lot of different reason, reasons, but poorly fitting shoes, poorly trimmed toenails, those are the most common causes. Uh, usually it's the big toe affected, but really any toenail can become ingrown. The skin along the edge of a toenail that's ingrown appears sort of red. It gets a little swollen. It could be painful. It will be painful. Uh, and it could feel warm to the touch. And these are signs not only of pressure on the skin, but also the beginnings of infection. So if you don't treat it, the condition worsens, even leading to maybe accumulation of pus as a kind of uh, abscess-type formation. Let's talk about your shoes. Now, shoes that are either too tight or too loose can cause ingrown toenails. If they're too loose, it causes continuing pounding of your big toe against the inside because your foot is moving within the too-big shoe as you walk. Now, if you have shoes that are too small for your foot, and ladies, if you wear high heels, you may know what this is like. You have extra pressure that's placed on your toes, which prevents normal nail growth. So that's one big issue. And proper trimming is another. Nails that are not trimmed properly can can definitely cause ingrown toenails. And this happens when your toenails are trimmed too short or you cut your toenails in a rounded fashion instead of straight across. That's actually interesting that fingernails should be actually cut in a rounded fashion, uh, but not toenails. Toenails should be cut straight across. And the edges, if, if you don't cut them correctly, the edges of the nails will tend to curl downward and go right into the skin and cause you a lot of pain. Ow. That's right. Now, those are here. Yeah, <laughs> your sound effects. I know, and that and that hurts. Now, these issues, you know, wearing bad shoes, uh, poorly fitting shoes, and improperly trimming nails, like you can fix those. You can buy shoes that actually fit you, or, or you can decide you're going to cut your nails appropriately. But there are some less avoidable factors that cause ingrown toenails. Heredity is part of it. Uh, injuries that occur medical conditions. Some of these can cause ingrown toenails. Some people are born with nails that are curved and tend to naturally curve inward. Those people are going to have a lot of ingrown toenails. And injuries to the nail bed, if you whack your toe with a hammer for some reason and it damage your nail matrix, it can cause ingrown toenails. Because the germinal matrix, if it is normal, it will grow normal nails. If your germinal matrix is curved inward or damaged in some way, it could cause new cells that are not normal and are deformed in some way and can grow right into the skin. People with uh, diabetes uh, or other illnesses that cause poor circulation, that's an issue as well. They are at high risk. A diabetic can experience nerve damage, not even realize that there is excessive pressure being applied to the toes by badly fitting shoes. And or may, may not even notice that the nail is growing into the skin. Of course, in normal times, you got podiatrists, you got orthopedic specialists that you can visit to deal with the problem. But off the grid, 
you got to deal with it by yourself. And so here's some tips on how to treat an ingrown nail. You soak the foot in warm water with Epsom salts. That's something really good for an ingrown toenail to soften things up maybe three to four times a day. Uh, in between soaks, you want to keep the toe dry, though. Uh, you use an antiseptic to decrease the bacterial count in the area so that you don't have a cellulitis or an infection in the soft tissue around the nail. Uh, you want to place maybe a small piece of moist cotton or dental floss or even maybe a little piece of a toothpick under the nail and to, to get it away from the skin. And sometimes that may help it grow away from the skin. And of course, you don't want to wear tight-fitting shoes. You want to maybe consider wearing sandals on this toe, uh, this damaged toe, until you feel better. Now, at some point or, or another, however, you may have no choice but to intervene more aggressively. And in these circumstances, you may have to, as Amy mentioned, remove the offending segment of nail. So in that case, what you need to do is take the ingrown curved side of the nail, then uh, you're going to go ahead and try to numb the area as best you can, and you're going to cut about one-fifth of the nail plate width. Not, not the length, like the part that you cut when you're cutting your nails, but the width so that you can get out all of the curved area. Right, the part that's under the skin. Exactly. You might have to cut all the way down to the base of the nail in some cases, and this is basically what you have to do when the nail matrix is abnormal and just curves so much that even the base of the nail grows out curved and digs into the skin. So this procedure, by the way, is a lot more easily done after injecting some numbing medicine into the area. It is painful to have it dealt with. Now, I will say that if you have lidocaine, that's great, but avoid lidocaine with epinephrine. The epinephrine causes the circulation in fingers, for example, and toes to be compromised. That could lead to gangrene due to loss of circulation, so it's something that's important to know. Uh, if the toe's infected, antibiotics are important. Maybe triple antibiotic ointment is helpful in general, but oral antibiotics like Keflex, Fishflex, uh, clindamycin or fish sin or amoxicillin, fish mox forte, these may be necessary. And for more information about antibiotics in general, well, we'll talk about that in future shows. And we've talked about it, of course, in past shows as well. Now, if there's a portion of the nail that's cut off, patience is going to be required because it's going to take months for the nail to regrow. So that, if you have a genetic tendency towards ingrown toenails, be prepared to deal with recurrences. They are things that occur from time to time. But I'll tell you, if if you can, wear your shoes that fit you, wear properly fitted shoes, uh, shoes that protect the toes. So, you know, you want to, in general, unless you happen to already have an ingrown toenail, you'd like to have shoes that do protect the toes. Um, you got to manage your medical conditions, make sure that you have good circulation, don't develop diabetic issues, with regards to circulation, and uh, if you're older, make sure you also keep things clean uh, in, in your lower extremities, and make sure you teach appropriate foot grooming methods to your kids so that they know from a very early age what the appropriate way is to actually trim your toenails. So this is something that we find very, very Unusual, unusual to find a kid that knows exactly how to do things just right. Most of these kids, uh, if, if they cut their toenails at all, they 
don't cut them the right way. So make sure we, we got to instill a culture of medical preparedness. And part of that is making sure that grooming is appropriate, that good hygiene is appropriate, hand washing, respiratory hygiene, all these things are followed. If we could do that, then we'll have better luck keeping healthy in times of trouble. That's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones, Amy Alton, ARMP, also known as Nurse Amy. Thank you so much. Love you guys. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. 